listening to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. I'm really happy to be back after a long hiatus. If you follow me on Rockfin or are subscribed to my email list, uh, you'll be aware of why I was away. If not, I would direct you to those relevant updates if you'd like to know more. Um, I'd been hoping to be back a little sooner, but unfortunately demands were being made that my uh, three and a half year old daughter be COVID tested in order to continue going to her daycare. So she ended up being home for most of the last two weeks because I chose not to do that for various reasons. Um, Of course, in the time since I've been away, a lot has happened. One thing that I've been eager to discuss for some time has been this uh, relatively recent steady promotion of a UFO narrative that is being almost exclusively created and promoted by the CIA, other intelligence agencies, the U.S. military, and neoconservative figures like Marco Rubio, James Woolsey, and others. I'm once again joined by Robbie Martin of the Very Heavy Agenda and the Media Roots podcast to unpack what these very organizations and figures stand to gain from promoting this narrative and how it all ties back to old neoconservative ambitions to completely militarize space in order to secure American military hegemony through the 21st century and beyond. So really since last April, the promotion of the plausibility of UFOs has been steadily growing in the mainstream and becoming almost impossible not to notice in the lead up to a U.S. government report on these very topics due out later this month, uh, at least to Congress anyway. Though much hasn't been revealed yet about the report itself, the window has been open about the role of potentially extraterrestrials or Russia and China as being behind uh, the UFO phenomena. It's important to point out that the information regarding the report and those incidents that have been covered by the media in the lead up to its completion uh, have come almost entirely from either the U.S. intelligence community or the U.S. military. And of course, followers of my work will know how I feel about that last point, as the last people I take at face value are the U.S. military and U.S. intelligence, and that's certainly the case here. So, Robbie, it's always great to have you back on. So uh, I'd like to start asking you your impressions, uh, what they've been of this recent ratcheting up about the UFO narrative and the people behind it. Thanks for having me on, Whitney. Uh, It's kind of hard to know where to start, but I guess I'll just start chronologically, not going back too far, but this recent rollout um, appears to have really started with a New York Times article from last year that basically was the first mainstream media article that I know of that actually had contained in it footage claiming to be from the U.S. military photographing some kind of UFO or as they now call them, UAP. Uh, what is, I don't even know what the acronym actually is. Um, I think it's Unidentified Aerial Phenomena is what UAP yeah. is supposed to be, yeah. So then, you know, that that article kind of made some buzz. It didn't, it, it it had, you know, a lot of people were excited about it. A lot of people were weirded out by it. it. I was weirded out by it when I saw it. I remember watching the footage and thinking, now this is really odd that this would even come out of the New York Times. And then, you know, I kind of forgot about it. And then about a year later, uh, which was, I think, like two and a half weeks ago from the time we were recording this, uh, one of the most, you know, esteemed uh, news programs in the country, 60 Minutes, does an entire segment about it and presents it all very, very seriously. And in this segment, uh, it was revealed that Christopher Mellon, uh, the former deputy assistant secretary of defense for intelligence in the Pentagon, Uh, actually acknowledges and takes credit for being this sort of heroic whistleblower inside the Pentagon who wanted to get this stuff out there, you know, and leaked these videos to the New York Times. And then we have Louis Elizondo, who's featured 
very you know all over the 60 minutes special he's kind of this he almost seems like some kind of ufo crank you know conspiracy guy but he was in the pentagon supposed to be this guy who was you know this guy who was really trying to rattle all the cages in the pentagon and really tell people this is serious we need to investigate this and he was sort of laughed at and whatnot and this is sort of how the story was presented but i thought the most compelling thing at least in the 60 minute special for me and this is sort of you know this is just my gut reaction to it was that i think I, my gut reaction to it was that at least two of the people in the special, two of these Air Force pilots, were either telling the truth about what they saw or they're extremely good actors, like Oscar-quality actors. So I tend to believe their eyewitness accounts, but at the same time, Whitney, I'm I'm very much in line with your thinking on what this rollout really is about, and it does seem to be sort of a roundabout way to push for so, you know, some kind of increase in militarization of space. But what I find really interesting about this way this has been rolled out is it has the appearance of being some kind of patriotic insiders inside the state who are trying to rattle the cages in the government and, and you know, really wake people up. And this is almost kind of like a populist narrative in a way. It's like it's not, you know, Joe Biden's not getting up there at the podium and saying we we now admit there's UFOs and they're a threat or whatever. It's almost has this appearance, almost like the way the lab leak theory about Wuhan has sort of reemerged. It has this sort of false appearance of being something that whistleblowers got out there. And now the media has no choice but to talk about it. Now, I think that's all sort of an illusion that we've been, you know, that's part of the propaganda rollout. And I, I me personally, I think that's the way that most of these sort of disinformation operations work now is they are done in a sort of a limited hangout way where it's like, oh, check out this mm -hmm. whistleblower who's a threat. You know, the government was trying to shut him down. But now we have no choice but to cover this. But I mean, I, I, I guess I just got to say the most remarkable and most, I, I think, most crazy thing about this, that 60 Minutes would air this, is that this is the first time in history that I know of, at least in American culture, that all of a sudden, just on a dime, the news media is like, okay, now this is serious. Like before it was always kooky, it was silly. It's like, let's, let, let's, you know, we're going to talk about the story for you, but we're not going to say that we believe in it or anything. And now that the difference in tone is like remarkably, you know, it's, it's very different. It's like, yeah. So that to me is odd. It's not organic. I don't think just because yeah, some agree. of these news media people saw this video that's supposedly of a UFO from the military, they all of a sudden were convinced, you know, something else is happening here. And that's sort of, I mean, I imagine that's part of what we're going to talk about is like what's really mm -hmm. happening underneath this. Um, but, you know, at the same time, Whitney, like I personally do think, you know, some of these eyewitness accounts over time are credible. Now, that doesn't mean that I think that you know, there's not something fishy going on or, or funny going right. on here. It's just that there's something more to this uh, that I think we, you know, probably should unpack for people because it's sure. just so many facets to it. Well, you know, Navy pilots and their eyewitness stuff is is one thing, right? But the people that are really driving this narrative and have given it quote unquote mainstream credibility have been um, a lot of former CIA CIA directors recently talking about this on record, like a uh, John Brennan, James Wolsey. Um, among oh, others. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And um, actually, James Wolsey talked about it pretty recently on his book tour, where he's claiming that um, uh, John F. Kennedy was killed by the Kremlin. <laughs> um, yep. And then goes on to talk about, you know, oh, I think UFOs are credible now and all of this stuff. So it's being driven by people like that. Also, Barack Obama's come out and 
that was really claims. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that once the, to me, once he came out and said that, that was, that's kind of amps it up to a degree that, you know, even you could have like five CIA directors coming out and saying right. it, and it wouldn't move the needle. But Obama coming out and saying it, it's like, what the fuck? Yeah. Well, you also have Marco Rubio, who um, I don't know if he still is, but he was in December when some of this stuff was going on ahead of the Senate intelligence or acting head of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, and then you have Harry Reid um, coming out and talking about how he's believed in UFOs this whole time. But he was told not to talk about it publicly until now, um, which is a little odd. So, you know, there, there's this consensus among the power structure that's that it's OK to talk about it now. And I think that's why the mainstream media is acting that way. Um, and that's really concerning that, quote unquote, conspiracy theories are only mainstream credible if the intelligence community and very obviously compromised politicians say it's OK to talk about, um, because obviously those forces only do that when it's in their best interest. And I think, you know, um, going back to the Navy pilot point, I think, you know, there's been a lot of pilots and stuff that have said a lot of things over the years. And, and a lot of it is likely credible in those cases. But I think only now they're using those to their advantage for part of this broader agenda. 100%. I mean, it's, that's, that's what's so fascinating about it is what you said is the is really, I think, cuts through all this stuff is that we all is that all of a sudden the public is starting to take this seriously because intelligence officials and like mainstream media have like told told people it's okay essentially psychologically yeah speaking. and that's scary that no, they're is. the people that determines what's credible and what's not to the american public just because of you know their track record alone um you know is, is just scary enough but that this report that a lot of this buzz has come from recently that's supposed to um uh, be unclassified to the public at some point and it's going to be given to Congress and all of this stuff. It's not, it's being developed by the Pentagon, but in coordination with the, the office uh, of the director of national intelligence who leads the whole intelligence community. So it's the Pentagon and the intelligence community together authoring this. Um, and I mean, anyone that thinks they're going to tell the truth about this issue, um, you know, I, I would consider you naive, no offense. Um, it's a little concerning to me that people would just take this, um, this whole push at face value, but it really has, um, apparently anyway, had an, an impact. Uh, two days ago, Newsweek reported on a survey that said 43% of Americans are now more interested in aliens oh after the God. Pentagon UFO report, because, you know, uh, allegedly, uh, because of the New York Times reportings on some of these these early findings uh, from it, they left the door open about whether uh, extraterrestrials or aliens are involved in the UFOs or not. And there's really only two camps that these um, you know national security figures and politicians have left open uh, as explanations. Uh, one is that the UFOs are extraterrestrial in origin, and the other is that the UFOs are Russia and China. It has to be one or the other, um, yeah. which is pretty. Uh, concerning when you look at it through the lens of this is being used to push for a long-standing agenda agenda about militarizing space. And and Whitney, I just thought of something that I think is is really crucial to this. And I I know this is just like a real time pontification, but look at what's happened during the Trump era. The mainstream media's credibility plummeted down to the floor. Almost no one, you know, mm -hmm. other than if you're a lib you know, generic lib, almost no one trusts the mainstream media anymore. It's, it's, it, it, the, that, that Overton window, it's like, it's, it shifted so strongly during the Trump era that you have to imagine on some level that this, whatever this is, this UFO rollout, it's the first time that I've seen in a long time, 
people in a bipartisan fashion getting excited and believing the mainstream media that like, oh, the mainstream media is reporting on this. This must mean it's true. That's one of the first bipartisan like beliefs in that that I've seen maybe since before Trump. And I and that to me is really interesting because on some level, you know, QAnon and that whole phenomenon kind of increased people's distrustingness of mainstream media. You know, whether, you know, I'm not saying that was a net result, a good thing that QAnon did. I'm just saying that's what happened. And it's sort of odd that that was used as a vehicle by whoever, to, you know, to cause all this chaos. And it involved a lot of conspiracy theories from conspiracy culture. And it was sort of, you know, in part designed to undermine the mainstream media. And then now here we have the mainstream media pushing out a very strong and powerful sort of conspiracy folklore mythology thing about UFOs and gaining all this power again in a weird way. So I, yeah. I find that very psychologically interesting. And I, and I do think that might have something to do with what we're seeing here. You know, I know, I mean, I know I totally agree with you on the space force stuff, but there is a psychological component to this. That's very interesting to me. Yeah, that, that is a really good point to raise because it definitely has sort of brought people back into the fold of mainstream media, I think, to an extent, because it's like, oh, this is so unusual for them to report on. Ergo, it must be there must be something yes. true to this, I think, is the effect it's having. And if you look at, you know, um, what what some people think to be, you know, some of the origins of what's later spawned QAnon, like Cass Sunstein's. Uh, paper on, you know, infiltrating conspiracy movements. Well, you know, if you're going to infiltrate conspiracy movements to make them love government instead of distrust government, you can also uh, infil infiltrate the mainstream with conspiracy talking points to, to you know, meet specific goals as well. So, I, I mean, these people obviously consider that stuff. And having seen the appeal of um, alternative media addressing so-called uh, forbidden truths or, you know, um, in, in, or, you know, in the case of QAnon going, you know, into different, um, you know, topics of uh, in conspiracy land and whatnot, the success that 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 um, that had in drawing people's attention. Um, I mean, maybe they saw this as a as a way to, you know, not just uh, resuscitate mainstream media, but also, um, you know, push for different agendas and and have just a, a, a larger psyop on the general public. So it could almost be seen, you know, on whether what whatever the meat of this actually is, whatever other purposes it serves it can almost be seen as like a trial balloon rollout it's like can we get people to hooked on our own version of a conspiracy narrative and in a way they successfully have and and it's bipartisan so that's another sort of interesting aspect to it i mean that's i think really notable because the media is really unable to do that with almost anything else this in a weird way gives them the power to do that and i'm not saying that's the complete intent behind it but it's definitely I mean, it, it does give them an incredible amount of power and new credibility in a strange way. Well, also, you know, if, if the alien aspect uh, or hostile alien aspect um, is, or the fact that a, a foreign adversary has really advanced technology, if that's introduced as an explanation for these things at some point, you know, that will definitely stoke a lot of fear that the government, I think, will take advantage of uh, for various reasons um, and to get people that currently aren't falling in line to fall in line. Uh, because how else do we combat such a massive threat as this without, you know, the U.S. military behind us and all of this stuff? Um, so, yeah. you know, I think that's worth considering as well. And also the old, I mean, let's go back to the classic psychological paradigm here of, uh, you know, almost like the day the earth stood still. The the concept that if aliens came to visit earth, it would somehow end all of our, uh, 
internal conflicts with each other. We would be looking outward in fear rather than looking at each other in fear. Yeah, that's, and that's humanity just, would unite against the common enemy of the alien or whatever. Yeah, yeah people that's have like culturally. This. That's culturally been baked into our, you know, pop culture forever. I mean, the Watchmen, uh, you know, has a sort of a there's a component of it that's all about that. So, well, yeah, and video games, too. Yeah. Um, Mass so, Effect being one. Mm -hmm. So I do think that could also be used. Uh, you know, this will this could pivot and it already is. Some people are already doing it to be about Russia and China. Are they behind this? But it could also pivot to being something like what I just mentioned, where it's it's a psychological ploy in some way to get us just to completely, you know, focus our attention on something else. Like if they can convince us that these things are just a threat to humanity and that's the line, then that could also have a powerful, you know, impact on the way that we think about the world and other countries and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to, uh, I, I tend to agree with that. And also another point I wanted to bring up is that, um, the investigators behind this report, remember, they're the military and the intelligence community writing this, right? They have allegedly ruled out the possibility that the UFOs have any relation to secret U.S. military or intelligence technology or black programs of either. And it's pretty interesting that people would believe anything uh, the Pentagon or the intelligence community would say about their own black budget programs. I think that's... um kind of silly to take on face value. And I think it also just shows that there's like a lot of public ignorance about the fact those programs even exist. So for yeah. example, if you have Navy pilots talking about credible things that are really weird, they certainly wouldn't be privy to know the information of, uh, of what's researched and what has been developed uh, through those programs, um, for example. And, you know, I mean, there's some really crazy technology that was de obviously developed by these programs a long time ago that's being commercialized now. So as in one example, there's an Israeli company that now advertises that, that they can beam sound into your head with a device. You don't have to wear headphones. Um, yeah. and, and once those type, that type of technology like reaches commercial market, it's been around for a long time. And that type of technology tends to be developed by groups like DARPA or the CIA or their equivalents in other countries. So, you know, yeah. the fact that that's been commercialized now means that every intelligence agency in the whole world has access to that type of technology now. Um, and so, you know, oh, you know, if there's some sort of thing about aliens speaking telepathically to people and all of this stuff, you know, it's really important that we know the type of technology the military has been trying to work on um, and all of this stuff um, before people just give in to the awe factor um, that is, is being sort of woven into this whole UFO narrative here. I don't actually know if they're going to try and roll out the alien thing or not, or just keep it mysterious. Um, but sort of frame the UFOs as threatening without saying what their source is. I think that's probably more likely, but, um, you know, there's a lot, of, this could get really crazy. It really depends on where they want to take this. Um, and I don't really want to say that I know what's going to happen there. But I think, you know, the fact of the matter, whether even real aliens get rolled out or not, uh, the intelligence community and the military, uh, th they will they they're not going to tell us the truth. If, if there is stuff like that around, they've known about it for some time. They just didn't tell people um, so much of this stuff is has been classified for years. Um, and obviously, you know, all these conspiracy theories popped up from something at some point, um, whether it was, you know, secretive. Um, U.S. Uh, national security community technology or something else. Um, I just, you know, I don't think we should trust these people to tell us um, what's what on an issue that's going to be so sensational and, and have such lasting impacts. 
Of course. And, and just in case anybody's listening who didn't wasn't following the way this is rolled out, I mean, basically what Whitney's talking about is this, they released a report, you, you know, right after the 60 Minutes special, trying to, you know, claiming they were going to investigate it. And one of the most interesting omissions in the report is it does it basically says we don't know what these are. So it says it's not U.S. technology, it's not our stuff, and we don't know what it is. That inherently creates the perception that it's something really threatening and and dangerous because if the military if the u.s military doesn't know what it is then that means that it's a threat to them automatically you can make that logical leap and it's and i think that that's part of what this is designed to do it's not like they're saying they don't even have to say these craft move way faster than anything we have they could outmaneuver us they can attack us and then we wouldn't be able to respond it's just the mere fact that these craft can move faster than military jets alone implies that so they don't even need to really say that yet it's like i can kind of boil the frog a little bit right now and just let people think that themselves because if you just watch that video you know even though these military pilots sound like excited and they're like laughing they're like oh my god like we're, we got this thing on we're tracking it like they're all like you know having this like crazy time you know on on some level people watching that know that it is an inherently threatening thing that they're trying to show us that the military, you know, can't even outmaneuver these things. So that's, I mean, I think that we, so that needs to be understood too, mm -hmm. that there's, there's an underlying message there that's already there. Absolutely. And actually there's a quote from this that was in an ABC news report a week ago. Uh, the quote comes from Mick Mulroy, who is now an ABC news contributor, but used to, it was formerly a CIA officer and also a deputy assistant secretary of defense. Uh, it's funny how so many um, of these like ex-spooks, ex-military people are now regular contributors to mainstream news. But anyway, he's, um, he told ABC this has to be investigated because, quote, these objects appear to exceed our military capabilities. And he goes on to say, we need to determine who this is and what capabilities they possess. It is never a good thing to discover you are vastly behind in technology. From a national security perspective, we cannot presume benevolence, whether terrestrial in origin or not. So, That's you know, right if, if you, yeah, exactly. So if you choose either of the, the two possible explanations that we're being told are the only possible explanations um, by these people, you know, it's, uh, uh, there needs to be a new, basically a new military arms race <laughs> of some type uh, that's intimately tied to space, which is pretty wild. And in the wake of this, um, the, or the release of these early findings of the, the Pentagon report, um, NASA, uh, which is actually led by, uh, I didn't realize this until I was preparing for this podcast. It's led by Bill Nelson now, who is like the, he, he's a former Senator, longtime Senator for Florida, but he's probably the only person in like us politics. That's as geriatric as Joe Biden. I'm put in charge of NASA. Uh, anyway, he's directed researchers to study um, at NASA to study UFOs uh, now um, as like a as an important focus in, in the in the wake of this uh, hype about the Pentagon um, and intelligence community report. But it's interesting that the media is only calling it the Pentagon report, but not really, you know, noting in the fine print, basically, that it's um it's being done in coordination with the intelligence community. And it's actually going to be the intelligence community that gives the findings to Congress, not the Pentagon. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just super obvious that there's that there's a psychological warfare component to whatever this is. Yes. Regardless <laughs> of where agree. you land on, you know, aliens or not, or if you believe in UFOs or not, this this has to be, 
you know, being used as a vehicle for some kind of psychological warfare, geopolitically, but also domestically, like twofold. And one thing I think people need to go back to is this documentary that was made, um, I think it was made like 10 years ago called Mirage Men. Uh, that's basically all about this one government agent uh, named Richard Doty, or Doty, I think his parents' his name. He's a retired special agent. <clears throat> he worked for the uh, the United States Air Force Office of Special Investigation, and he was posing as a ufologist researcher. And he would basically, his job became to go undercover to UFO conventions and like UFO researcher groups and plant disinformation. And the reason behind doing this was to cover up or basically muddy the waters of people's awareness of advanced military technology. Mm -hmm. So that right there, we already we already have a very clear example, an admitted example of the Pentagon, you know, obviously working in conjunction with some kind of Intel uh, apparatus was doing this, doing this for that purpose. So we already know that they've done that. And so if that was the purpose, then. Is that the purpose now? Is this some advanced military technology that we just that is just so crazy we don't understand it? I mean, you know, we already we've already and then what's strange to me, Whitney, too, is this is sort of coming at the same time as all this talk and rumors about potential microwave weapons that are being used to target our yeah. embassy officials. Now, a year and a half ago, it was like they weren't saying microwave weapon. They were saying this is mysterious. We don't know what this is. It, it's a weapon, we think. But now they're actually in the headlines just straight up saying microwave weapons in mainstream media. I mean, so we've gone from basically thinking UFOs are kooky, only the, the, you know, the domain of the fringe conspiracy theorists, and that also electronic direct targeting into your brain was the craziest, most schizophrenic, paranoid thing you could believe. And now both are being reported by mainstream media. Yeah, I mean, yeah. How and also weird is that? Totally. And also like even like direct energy weapons and stuff, I think fall into that category. They've gotten a lot more mainstream. Uh, yeah. There's been a lot more mainstream discussion about them, whereas there wasn't uh, before, and that uh, you know, and I think that's just um, a testament to the fact that a lot of the technology um, the capabilities that the national security state has, we don't know about, they don't admit um, until, you know, years after the fact. And, um, you know, got the, they, they hide that stuff from people. And it, it's years ahead of where uh, commercial technology is. Um, Absolutely. And, and I mean, there's so many weapons that the U.S. government has experimented with on record. They've tried to make hallucinogenic smoke grenades. I mean, they've tried they've they, we've already have things where we've done direct energy weapons. But ultimately, Whitney, going back to my point about how it is inherently you can just in your mind fill in the blanks that if these things can outmaneuver our Air Force, then already it's some kind of threat. Then already the United States is not the dominant force on this planet somehow it automatically can lead to that thought so that being said what would you need to defeat that threat you'd need weapons or a response that moves can outmaneuver them or can somehow go way faster than what we already have and you mentioned directed energy weapon that's that's one thing that we've already been talking about doing uh which can do that you know can move at the speed of light or whatever and then the other one is something that we've been actively talking about and even the media has been reporting about at the same time as these ufo stories and it's this idea of a hypersonic weapons arms race weapons that can actually go five to ten times faster than the speed of sound and that you know it's like well, in your head it's like well what how can we outmaneuver these mysterious craft well you need hypersonic or weapons that just 
go extremely fast. And so it's, it sort of plays directly into that. And that's also just really scary, you know, that if, if they're really making those, you know, that could be another, I don't even know if that's possible, but they're, you know, the military has been actively talking about hypersonic missiles forever. I don't know. Like 10, 20 yeah. Years. Well, I think, I think another key component, um, well, a, a key policy goal here of the military and the intelligence community is to literally surround the earth in low orbit satellites. And this is actually what SpaceX's Starlink is doing right now. And they openly have said, uh, <laughs> you know, for years that the, the goal of, of Starlink is to basically envelop earth with broadband and transform the sky. But this has admitted military capabilities of allowing the military and the intelligence community to surveil basically the entire planet. Um, and of course, they can say, oh, this way we can know where the UFOs are and all of this stuff. And we can see and observe um, all of the threats um, before they happen. And, you know, this really goes back to the Reagan era of we need weapons in space so that we can, um, you know, if, if the Soviet Union launches a missile, we can disable it from space and we can use our radars positioned in space to know when they're going to launch a nuke or launch um, uh, an intercontinental ballistic missile and we can disable it before it ever reaches the homeland um, and all of and all of this stuff. So now that's being applied instead of the boogeyman of the Soviet Union, I would argue, um, is being applied to the boogeyman of what are the UFOs? I mean, they could be Russia or China. Or they could be something else. I, I don't even think they really have the defined the, the, the source of the threat. They just have to make the UFOs themselves uh, threatening enough to justify um, the money being poured into this. But, you know, it obviously has, a, you know, much broader um, implications than quote unquote fighting the or combating the UFOs or understanding better the UFO um, issue. Because, you know, if you're going to basically blanket the planet in surveillance and basically be able to laser um, any point on the planet whenever you want. Um, that is not the kind of power that the U.S. military intelligence community and their allies should have. Um, I think that's pretty, should be pretty clear, but this is actually a pretty old um, agenda. I don't know if you want to talk about, um, go into that yet, or if there's any more you want to say about the most current uh, narrative push. Well, yeah, before we go to that, if you don't mind, I just wanted to just go into the sort of the folklore aspect of how, you know, just what this plays on, especially sure. in American culture, because, you know, also it's like you don't have the Pentagon and, and all these little mainstream media reports don't even have to mention the possibility of actual extraterrestrial creatures or alien abductions or anything. It's all connected culturally for us already. We already have heard these stories thousands of times. But the X-Files was all about, you know, the concept of the government working with aliens to, you know, enslave the population. It mixed all types of alien folklore things together kind of as a big mashup. So like that in of itself is really, I think for people who have certain people who've watched that special or who have read, read these stories, they're actually experiencing a deep sense of fear and uncomfortability that is almost like on the same is almost akin to like believing that ghosts are real. Their house is haunted. It, it, transcends normal fears that people typically have about like real life tangible things it's yeah got this deep you know seeded sort of cultural fear to it the idea of alien abductions i mean even just for me personally i mean uh, one of the scariest things i ever saw as a child and it's really cheesy now to watch but it was the movie communion with christopher walken and like that scared the shit out of me as when i was like eight years old when i saw that on tv 
and you know, I know, I know, I'm not alone in that. So, like, there's a very powerful psychological component to this. Mm-hmm. And what's also bizarre is I, I mean, I personally believe a few of these different stories that have been out there because there's just so many witnesses. And you know, I don't know. I, you know, I haven't gone. I haven't taken the leap to think. Oh, these are aliens visiting us, or these are. This is really physically happening in front of these people. I tend to go in the direction of this is some kind of maybe even experimental technology to ha- make people hallucinate, or you know, if microwave, if they're able to do microwave weapons to give people brain damage now, can you also create some kind of mass delusion? Can you in- induce a hallucination with a with a weapon of some kind? I mean. Just for example, here's a very bizarre incident that is very hard to explain. Um, that in 1994 in Zimbabwe, a school in a city called Ruya, uh, Ruwa, sorry, um, 30 students, or sorry, 60 students who went to this elementary school claimed that a UFO landed in on their playground and that an alien came out of the UFO that they described as almost looking like a very skinny black stick figure of some kind, and it was telepathically beaming thoughts into their brain about how humans should stop polluting the earth. It all sounds very ridiculous and corny, but the craziest part is about 30 years later, all these students who claim that they saw this still stick to their story. And, you know, what is that? Is, is that, you know, that, cause that's almost completely different than what these UF us air force pilots are reporting. That would almost have to be explained by, you know, if it's if they didn't really see that, then it was some kind of hallucinatory event. How could sixty children, you know, hallucinate the same thing? It's it's such a strange thing. Um, very hard to explain. I mean, even the fire in the sky incident uh, with Travis Walden. You know, this famously book written about it called Fire in the Sky. You know, that was seven witnesses who saw that, and you know, most of them, I think, except for one, passed lie detector tests because the guy Travis Walden, while he was supposedly abducted the police did a real investigation because they thought his coworkers murdered him in the, in this, during this logging job that they were doing. But in fact, they, you know, they claim they saw him be abducted by a UFO into the sky, like with like unexplainable technology. I mean, what are these, what are these incidents? Is this just all people making this stuff up? Or is this experimental government technology? I mean, these, these are to me the things that, you know, not just make me, you know, kind of chilled, but also, you know, like just make me curious about what is actually going on here. Yeah. Um, well, uh, those stories, uh, the last ones you mentioned, I can't really, you know, comment on beyond what you already brought up, but what I will say about, um, how this has been this mythology and, and these different aspects of, of UFOs and aliens, how they've been seated in sci-fi in movies and television. It's important to keep in mind that the military and also the CIA have greatly influenced a lot of coverage oh, yeah. about this stuff over the years. X-Files and even- included. Exactly. And and even, you know, talking about things targeting kids, like actually Disney, um, their whole Imagineering department in the 1990s was run by a guy that was at the same time doing uh, on the on a defense uh, advisory board for the Pentagon, um, got a CIA <laughs> medal of recognition and brought on a bunch of people um, that had previously been DARPA contractors that also had ties to Jeffrey Epstein, of all people, um, to come and basically... Um, uh, 
advise the Imagineering department of how to sell a lot of this um, futurist technology that we're seeing rolled out now to children uh, through like Tomorrowland exhibits and, and, and different things during that period and movies and, and things like that. So, um, you know, this is definitely something that's um, been very far reaching. It makes you wonder if what's going on now um, you know, it, it has been in, in, in the works for a really long time. I know that the space militarization thing certainly has been. But in terms of where they steer this, um, it is worth considering that maybe there were some people that always planned to have it steered this way at some point. Um, though I don't really, you know, we don't really know that until we end up seeing where uh, where <laughs> this whole um, crazy narrative and, you know, how it plays out. You know, we'll have to see how things uh, turn out down the line to really truly know um, more about that, but it definitely is a possibility. Well, yeah, I mean, and you know, just going back to Mirage Man for a second, it does seem like this is something that the government has attempted multiple times throughout the years. I mean, I know a lot of people in the UFO community think Robert Lazar is, you know, totally credible and that he's telling the truth, but like, you know, the things he he said sound pretty over the top i mean i don't know if you're familiar with the, his claims whitney but mm -mm. he's claimed that he worked at area 51 and and actually operated you know confiscated alien craft and all this stuff and he's somehow very very credible he's actually directly associated with one of the fi documentary filmmakers who's partially responsible for getting all this stuff you know media attention like on joe rogan and stuff for the past couple of years so I mean that that's that's a particularly interesting figure uh, because you know he has not only pushed this idea that UFOs are real, but he's connected it also directly to like the gray alien thing, you know, from like the X Files. Yeah, um, I I do want to bring up though the competing uh, theory about Area Fifty One that it's been used to experiment on soldiers really heavily. Um, oh, yeah. That a lot of soldiers have been poisoned there. That it's really heavily contaminated um, with different things, which may explain some of the different phenomena. Um, observed there. I mean, the you know, obviously we don't really know. I mean, the U.S. Senate even acknowledged its existence until 2013. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, of course, has, you know, this whole mythos of UFO about it, but it's worth asking if that is, um, you know, a ploy to make people think exactly. it's an interesting yeah. place instead of a hellish and scary and terrifying place. Well, the know. burn pits, the, I mean, there's been, there was a famous um, court case where they basically, it was like a really interesting and bizarre court case. Actually, Jonathan Turley was on the side of the, um, the, uh, the, you know, the people filing this lawsuit against the U.S. military for getting cancer from burn pits at Area 51. Um, so other than just human experimentation that they may be doing there, they're just doing horrible things environmentally that they don't even care if the soldiers you know get that's that very common effect. at all military oh, yeah. bases though <laughs> i, no, no, I agree clear. with you but mm -hmm. but i do think that there is something interesting about area 51 but maybe that's where they're doing some of the most awful stuff in that regard because you know the epa uh, wasn't even allowed to come in after that court case to check to see if they were you know like so the fact that they're not even allowed in there i think um you know, the, who the fuck knows what they're up to? Well, you know, keep in mind, too, that like the CIA and, and the intelligence community, they have, quote unquote, black sites. I mean, it would make sense that there would be a couple uh, military bases that would serve that function as well. And Area 51 would seem sort of to fit that um, bill in a lot of ways. And what better way to cover up really shady stuff that goes on there by making people think, ooh, it's cool and mysterious, and that's where the aliens are, you know? Um, the, I, I just think that would be a really effective tactic to cover up something else going on there. But again, who really knows? It's shrouded in mystery. 
difficult, difficult to know exactly, but it is technically an Air Force base, I believe. Mm -hmm. And the Air Force, um, of course, before the creation of Space Force, uh, was the most involved part of the military, you could say, in, in you know, space activities for obvious, uh, obvious reasons. So, you know, it's possible, but... And they still operate the base in a very, very secretive way. That's almost like, um, like a spectacle. I mean, they they bring people in in like civilian clothing, uh, have them like walk. You know, they have them take this unmarked plane to the to the to to go into work. They don't even have, people don't even drive in like to go to Area Fifty One. It's a very strange uh, thing, but yeah, I mean, I think that you know this this folklore. You know, and, and, and also it's there's there's a lot of actual evidence that suggests that even just during the old early Cold War, that the U.S. government was responsible for putting out a lot of this UFO propaganda in the first place with that like project, I want to say Project Monarch or something where there was like a disclosure back in the 60s or 70s. I mean, they so they I mean, they they've been up to this stuff for a long time and it's like who knows how much this narrative about aliens overall that we're familiar with is from the government. It's it's almost, you know, it almost becomes that much of a, a mindfuck in a way. Yeah, it really is hard to know. Um, and that's why it's always important, especially now that they're taking the, the narrative about it in, in this direction and, and seeding it in the mainstream so extensively that people be more critical than ever of questioning what's going on and skeptical about what they're going to claim. And um, in the interest of time, if it's OK with you, I kind of want to get into um sort of the longstanding agenda of um, yeah. why I think a lot of this is going on, which is about, you know, I've touched on it a little bit earlier about different aspects about the militarization of space. Um, and, you know, I, I talked a little bit earlier about the Reagan Star Wars stuff that was actually officially called um, the Strategic Defense Initiative. Um, and there's a lot of different opinions about it. Um, you know, it was largely uh, framed as being... Um, <laughs> basically a psychological operation about the Soviet Union. And it definitely did have that effect. But I think um, if you look at how Reagan first became interested in it, it was during a visit to Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And he was talking to this physicist, Edward Teller. And basically what that briefing was about that, that is credited with uh, spawning or, or pushing President Reagan to uh, create SDI or the Star Wars program was that Teller was telling him about directed energy weapons uh, and lasers and microwave weapons specifically, which is interesting considering what we just um, talked about. And of course, all this was framed SDI, the name in it, strategic defense initiative. It was all framed as defense. Um, but really it was this push to develop technology that didn't exist yet. That was just totally insane. Uh at the time. And, you know, apparently according to like George Saltz, who was secretary of state under Reagan, he said that the meeting with, with Teller put a gleam in Ronald Reagan's eye and all of this stuff after being told about these insane weapons of death, basically. So I don't really buy that it was a defense thing. And I think once they realized, I think it might've been accidental. It's used as a psyop against the Soviet union. Maybe once they realized how much it freaked out, um, their counterparts in the Soviet Union, then they started to, you know, milk it for all it was worth. But um, when, you know, Reagan announced it, they gave the Soviet ambassador to the U.S. a heads up about it. And what he uh, responded, uh, how he responded was saying, you will be opening up a new phase in the arms race. And Reagan insisted that was not what the case was. It was about, you know, defense. And eventually they'd share the technology with Russia 
and it would all be about defense and ending nuclear weapons forever. But if you actually look into that first meeting that got Reagan interested in it, it was about um, how do we direct giant lasers at our enemies and eliminate them? <laughs> I mean, it's like a very different, um, very different than the than the official narrative. And so because of, um, you know, basically, you know, um, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of this technology didn't even exist. And it was kind of um, lampooned by experts at the time, um, because, um, you know, it was basically um, a, a policy intended to influence science. It wasn't uh, science influencing policy, because that technology wasn't even around. And people didn't really even know how to invent it. But the same guy that um, this Edward Teller guy, the same guy that had sort of told all the, uh, talked about all these doomsday weapons to Reagan um, in 1987, uh, this is considered the crowning achievement of the Star Wars SDI program was this um, effort to create um, small space launched missiles. Uh, that was this program called Brilliant Pebbles. Mm -hmm. And basically uh, that was launched in 19, uh, it was um, basically launched as a concept in 1987 and pursued, um, but production was uh, set to began in 1991 um, under Bush senior. And, but it was actually um, eliminated or, or canceled and defunded under the Clinton administration in 1993 because of concerns it would violate um, missile treaties, which, of course, the Reaganites and neoconservatives weren't um, concerned about at the time. Um, and surprisingly, the Clinton administration was. Um, maybe it's because they just wanted to, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, portray themselves as being, you know, you know, real change from the Reagan era and all this stuff, you know, it's really, I don't know exactly why they did it, but it definitely was a sore point for the neocons uh, for years afterward. And um, going beyond that, um, I don't know if you want to comment before I get into this, but um, people sure. may uh, know about, um, <laughs> well, probably if you listen to this podcast and you, and you know about Robbie's work, you probably know about the project for the new American century, um, this neocon think tank in the late 90s and early 2000s, that's quite infamous uh, for people that have ever researched 9-11 at all um, because of, um, you know, their new Pearl Harbor quote before 2000. I, do you want to say a little bit about PNAC before I get into their um, space opinions? Sure. I mean, um, I, you know, I don't usually say this outright, uh, but I, I'll say it on your podcast. I mean, I personally believe um, that some of the people who were associated with PNAC had some some involvement in some fashion with 9-11 or the 2001 anthrax attacks. So it's always been a source of, you know, obsession of mine because it's one of the only think tanks where I think, you know, the people in it and the things that they've said, you know, in public and in their documents, it, it just seems a little bit too coincidental, if you know what I mean. And one of those, you know, big things is the fact that they were basically asking for and desiring what they described as a new Pearl Harbor in one of their documents from 2000 called Rebuilding America's Defenses. And uh, they got exactly what they wanted, which was a new Pearl Harbor in the form of the 9-11 attacks. Yeah. And, uh, and, and one thing I'd add to that is that a lot of the members um, or original signatories also, um, but it's worth keeping in mind that there's the original signatories of the, of the PNAC um, you know, a statement of principles, but then there's also people like John Bolton, for example, that later became associated with PNAC and signed uh, multiple position papers and letters to presidents and Congress from PNAC uh, advocating for hawkish policies. And that's uh, not just Bolton, but also like Richard Pearl was a ne another neocon that got involved with PNAC that way. Um, 
But, yeah. you know, uh, Rebuilding America's Defenses, that was September 2000. And, you know, after that was published and, and the Bush administration came into office, um, not or, you know, uh, you know, uh, W. Bush, not Papa Bush, obviously, um, when he came into power, uh, just a, a significantly large amount of PNAC members uh, were put into top positions in uh, the executive branch in the Pentagon. Um, so for people that aren't um, aware of those connections, I would encourage you to look at that. And some of the key people in that regard would be people like um, someone we mentioned uh, earlier. Um, well, well, before I get to him, I'll, um, you know, like Paul Wolfowitz um, was a, an original PNAC member. He was deputy secretary of defense, very involved in the, the use of 9-11 for various, um, mm -hmm. you know, pushes like the Iraq war, among other things. Dob Zakheim, the Department of Defense comptroller, who was in charge of looking for the missing uh, trillions of the Pentagon, announced uh, the day before 9-11. And of course, the part of the Pentagon that was struck uh, was the accounting office that was looking for that um, missing trillion, not actually a part of the Pentagon where top military planners uh, were working. Um Donald Rumsfeld, who was himself U.S. Secretary of Defense, another original signer of PNAC Statement of Principles, Dick Cheney, um, Elliot Abrams, who was on the National Security Council, uh, Scooter Libby, who was um, his chief of staff, um, Zalmay Khalizad, who was uh, basically put in charge of a lot of um, Iraq and Afghanistan stuff post-invasion, and who I believe is actually, uh, what he was Trump's uh, Afghanistan envoy, but I think yes. he's actually still Biden's, uh, that Biden kept him yeah. on and he's still there. And then, yeah. of course, one of the key members on the 9-11 Commission, John Lehman, another member of PNAC. And, and there's, a, there's a lot more, too, uh, members of the Defense Policy Board um, and the Bush Administration Defense Science Board, um, director of the Pentagon's Office of Special Plans among other things, we're all part of this PNAC thing. And what makes rebuilding America's defenses so significant is that the people that, you know, in PNAC's view, uh, this was all, they had this whole agenda of things that had to happen that were necessary and had to happen. Otherwise, the U.S. would lose its military hegemony um, to another country, Russia or China. And this couldn't yeah. happen at all. And they say the only way to avoid this um, being a lengthy process where we'll lose hegemony is, uh, you know, the only way to prevent that is for basically a new Pearl Harbor to happen. Um, yeah. And I just wanted to mention uh, that, you know, if people are, if people are skeptical of this idea that, you know, these people who sign these documents, you know, were deeply involved in, in creating the blueprints for all these, you know, the last 30 years of, of U.S.'s geopolitical plans, uh, look to the actual document authors of rebuilding America's defenses, the people who contributed to this, you know, over 20 page document, it is Paul Wolfowitz, Scooter Libby, mm -hmm. uh, Robert Kagan, Fred Kagan. And interestingly, Donald Kagan's name is featured as one of the three main names who authored the document, the patriarch of the Kagan family. It's actually one of the only modern geopolitical like documents he's written like this. Uh, and, and then, you know, then you also have William Crystal, Bill Crystal, uh, who wrote mm -hmm. the Rebuilding America's Defenses. So these people weren't just, you know, neocon pundits. They were involved in the actual blueprints for like the Bush era strategy of the war on terror, you know, the Iraq war, all that stuff. Yeah. Well, Donald Kagan is listed officially as a project co-chairman. The other one is Gary Schmidt. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure who that is. Uh, but the main author um, is is Thomas Donnelly, who I believe now is a 
like Giselle Donnelly or something. Um, the the trans neocon, which is uh, no interesting. Really? Yeah, no you can way. Look it up. I'm, no I'm not, way. No, 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 no. Are you serious? I'm totally serious. That's fucking no way. Just just look it up. It's no it's surprising way. to see a neocon. Um, you know, but it's it's true. I did not make that it up. Is- I am blown away. I had okay. no. <laughs> okay, okay, sorry, anyway, sorry to blow your mind. Skip over that. We'll, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So anyway, um, so if you go to the, I would this document's pretty easy to find online still. So I would encourage you, if you're listening, to go and look it up and see this stuff for yourself. It's pretty crazy. Um, if you go to the preface, um, to Roman numeral five, well, really Roman numeral four, they list out their key findings, which is like a summary of the whole thing. Um, and one of the key points is on uh, the next page uh, where that starts, which is Roman numeral five. And one of the key things they highlight as what they're, the key things that have to happen is, quote, control the new international commons of space and cyberspace and pave the way for the creation of a new military service, the U.S. Space Force, with the mission of space control which is very interesting when we consider the fact that it was Trump. You had a bunch of neocons in his administration created Space Force. Um, pretty interesting. It's, it was actually PNAC's idea, not an America first Trumper idea to create Space Force. Um, and it's all about the control of the international commons instead of sharing it with like the international community. It's about U.S. dominance of the international commons for specific reasons. Um, and some of those reasons are really crazy, like um, denying P- uh, countries they don't like use of space for commercial purposes, among other things. I mean, wow. we can um, get into that. But, you know, we talked about earlier about how the most famous quote um, from this PNAC document is the new Pearl Harbor quote. And that quote is actually nestled at the introduction to the part talking about the essential need to use that new Pearl Harbor if it happens um, to facilitate uh, this huge pivot towards space and cyberspace, which I think is really mm. significant because it brings up sort of this um, end game, I guess you could say, of, of what that was meant to be. And that is exactly, that is where we are now. So for people that have, um, that, that want to see this for themselves in the document, there's different missions of space throughout the document, but this is the main section on it. And um, it starts on page 50 and it's a uh, section five uh, called creating tomorrow's dominant force. And it starts with um, to preserve American military preeminence in the coming decades, the department of defense must move more aggressively to experiment with new technologies and operational concepts and seek to exploit the emerging revolution in military affairs. And they talk about how this is being led by technology and the U.S. has to lead this transformation or they will fall behind. And then, of course, it says the the infamous quote, further, the process of transformation, if it brings revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. Um, and, and this is the exact section that they're talking about. And um, then it says, you know, these are the, the three mis- three new missions the armed forces must meet to maintain military preeminence um, based on this strategy that, you know, will be super lengthy and take forever unless there's a new Pearl Harbor. And those are uh, global missile defense, um, including ones that have space-based components, uh, control of space and cyberspace. And then uh, on that point, they say, um, 
much as control of the high seas and the protection of international commerce defined global powers in the past, uh, so will control of the new international commons, meaning space and cyberspace, the internet, um, be a key to world power in the future. In America, incapable of protecting its interest or that of its eyelids space or the, quote, infosphere will find it difficult to exert global political leadership, which is a uh, pretty interesting. Insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's just so interesting too, that we're in that end game right now. And it seems like, um, you know, the libs who are like anti-Trump are the ones who brought about this whole internet crackdown of the last four years that we've seen that does seem to be, some kind of deep state apparatus that is dominating cyberspace. It's like well, they're making their yeah, move. And then but, on the other hand, the people who are dominating space or the, you know, the, the, the apparatus that put the space force in was the Trump administration. So it's like these two goals in rebuilding America's defenses were, you know, arose out of the supposedly completely diametrically opposed forces. Well, and even government. in the case of like space from the commercial side and also the quote unquote infosphere, you know, both of those are being dominated right now uh, by Silicon Valley figures in space. It's uh, set to be Amazon and, and SpaceX, which is, of course, Jeff Bezos and, and Elon Musk and the infosphere, the Internet um, being dominated by, you know, companies like Google uh, and Facebook uh, among others, Facebook, of course, has these military origins ties to Peter Thiel, um, who, uh, you know, obviously has ties to Elon Musk going back as well. But Peter Thiel's ties to the CIA are really obvious by looking through Palantir and also his early connections to Richard Pearl, who had him set up Palantir, helped him set up Palantir, basically, who, again, was associated with PNAC um, and, and all of this stuff. And then the, the Google um, people um, Google being sort of facilitated in a lot of ways and funded by the CIA in its early days. And now they have, you know, near total control of the quote unquote info- infosphere, specifically Google, you know, through search and YouTube um, and then social media, Facebook and Twitter, obviously, you know, are, are very easily brought to heel by the national security community and have a lot of ties uh, to them um, or in the case of Twitter to, uh, you know, the, the Democrats. Uh, specifically the DNC and things like that. So it's definitely, um, you know, it's basically like the, you know, from 2000 on, they they set it up. So the infosphere at some point would, you know, the internet would would look free and like a, an international commons, but they ultimately control it, right? Um, of course. And the, the third point here, because there were three missions, so I just read off the first two. The third one's really interesting because it shows why Space Force wasn't made until um, several years, you know, decades really after this document was authored, they says there needs to be a two-stage strategy for transforming conventional forces. So first, um, the process, well, uh, they said the process will have two stages, transition featuring a mix of current and new systems. And this was um, basically having um, the Missile Defense Agency uh, collaborating with the Air Force, the Air Force uh, developing further its um, space um you know, systems and all of this stuff and the, the space command of, um, of the Pentagon and all of this. And then the second phase is true transformation featuring new systems, organizations, and operational concepts, which of course we are now in that true transformation phase, um, 
with uh, the creation of Space Force. And in 2018, there was also the creation of the Army Futures Command. Um, and a lot of these different uh, parts of the military, uh, like the Defense Innov Innovation Unit, that basically is a fusion of the defense community in Silicon Valley um, and all of this stuff. I mean, we're really in that phase of true transformation now. Um, people would say for better or for worse. I would say for worse because it's all um, just very Orwellian. I'm in disturbing technology and a lot of it is actually transhumanist as it relates to soldiers. Um, there's a facility that uh, that's opening, or I believe it's already opened. And I think Natwick, Massachusetts, um, that's all about using transhumanist tech and soldiers to get them to talk telepathically by through technological means um, and to direct machines with their thoughts and all of this stuff. Um, we are really entering a really crazy new phase. And this was all really, um, if you think about it, charted out by the same neocons that, you know, uh, in your opinion, and also in mine, uh, brought us 9-11 um, in a bunch of crazy wars um, that have killed millions of people, among other awful things. So do we really want them to have these capabilities? I think not. But, you know, that's just my opinion. I'm just astonished thinking back to how Matt Taibbi, uh, one of our favorite people, wrote a part, a chapter in his book saying that anybody's fixation on the phrase a new Pearl Harbor in this document was just a total lunatic conspiracy theorist that when you put it in context, he said, it's completely innocuous. It's not, it's totally harmless. It's just like all these other think tank papers. Well, you've just said Whitney shows that that's a hundred percent false. What Matt Taibbi is saying. Yeah, How well, can these... he as a journalist lie like that? I mean, that's, that's a straight up lie. This is one of the most crazy documents ever written by any neocon. I mean, you're, you're laying yeah, it all right there. And how mm -hmm. crazy is this too, Whitney? What's the most mentioned adversarial country in that document? By a factor of about two, it is China. This was yeah. written in 2000. Now what's happening? Who is being blamed for our internet being locked down and our censorship? It's that the Chicoms are influencing Silicon Valley or that Silicon Valley is bowing, bowing to the Chicoms, the Chinese government, like Peter Thiel is going out there saying right now. I mean, so it just really goes to show how this is all these pieces are sort of interlocking. And this is a really sophisticated, long term propaganda campaign in a lot of ways. And this yeah. UFO thing, in an odd way, fits perfectly into this. I mean, it's just I don't know. Sorry. Yeah, well, um, the first point you said about, you know, Matt Taibbi and there's other people, too, like this. Um, I know Aaron Matei has made his uh, view on 9-11 truthers really clear. And I think some other people. Uh, at the at the the gray zone, I've also said something similar, and I think there's a few other prominent people and independent media as well who've taken the stance that um, you're not that they refuse to engage with 9/11 truthers. Uh, they're totally crazy um, and all of this stuff. Um, and I think that's a really um, damaging uh, narrative. And I think it's quite um, odd that these people would still hold on to that claim uh, or that belief rather um, so firmly, you know, like 20 years after the fact, um, when clearly so much of what this document laid out has come or is coming to pass. Um, and it makes it really difficult. Um, in my opinion, to explain the realities um, that not just the U.S., but like the world has experienced as a result of the, the what happened after 9-11. It's hard to explain it as being as, as having been, you know, the official narrative, which really, if you critically look at the official narrative, it doesn't hold up to water. And even the 9-11 commission chairs 
wrote a whole book about how they were stonewalled by the Pentagon. They were lied to by the Pentagon and the intelligence community. It wasn't there. There were key questions that they couldn't answer. It's not a complete report. Um, so they're basically saying it was never fully investigated. The people of the 9-11 commission. So how well, can you um, just completely shit on people that still have questions um, when they're actually, you know, the people that supposedly were in charge of the quote unquote official investigation say there was no real official investigation. Um, I just think that's, that's dishonest um, in, so in a sense, but I think, you know, it comes from this careerist perspective that in order to um, be taken seriously, I guess, by mainstream circles, you have to toe the official line on certain things, uh, 9-11 being one of those. Um, but that really needs to lose its stigma after 20 years. I really think it's time um, because we're not going to be able to realize what's going on now if we can't, uh, you know, reckon with that event and the nature of of how that event transpired um, and how a lot of those people um, that were responsible for that are still very influential in policy circles today. Um, it's just it's just nuts. And I'll just ask the audience a basic question: If we're just weighing you know, uh, the idea that UF, that aliens are here and that they fly an aircraft that, you know, can move faster than anything we've ever seen and has like no friction. And it moves around like a cartoon. Is that more crazy to believe? Or is the idea that oh, people in the government <laughs> that were involved in 9-11 more crazy to believe? Yeah. So the idea that the 60 Minutes is now reporting basically on the former and taking it seriously the, the things have shifted quite dramatically. So the idea now that people in our government were involved in 9-11, it's honestly, overall, it's really on the scale of craziness. It's pretty far down the list in terms of like compared to what mainstream media is talking about now. So I think that's really actually kind of a positive thing uh, because, you know, all this sort, sort of oddly ties together, you know, rebuilding America's defenses probably talked about this idea of militarizing space in a, in a think tank document more than anybody else I know of from that time period. I mean, they it's were like really 10 pages. It's like one of the main yeah. sections and it's the section with the new Pearl Harbor stuff. It's amazing. It, they call for a new Pearl Harbor and they talk about control of the internet and information technology and control of space. And, um, you know, I think that's really relevant because a lot of people, even people in the nine 11 truth community that have been on PNAC, um, and, and talk about them all the time and talk about this document, I think have sort of missed that link um, between uh, the new Pearl Harbor quote and this, uh, this push to militarize space and also this push to uh, militarize and, and dominate information technology, Silicon Valley. And, um, you know, uh, the, I, I, I like that they use the term infosphere because it's very telling the flow of information um, you know, uh, by having it just be so online, um, and, and, you know, in the virtual world makes it easier for them to control than print, I think in a lot of ways. Um, and they've sort of led us into these, um, you know, digital corrals for sharing information that they ultimately control. And that's why a lot of people in independent media have been, you know, scrambling to look for alternative platforms and all of this stuff. But I think at the end of the day, a lot of that infrastructure was intentionally set up and controlled by these people um, because they've been planning this a really long time. So, you know, I think, you know, Matt Taibbi and saying that this document is, you know, in casting the new Pearl Harbor quote itself as innocuous, he's basically sort of discrediting the importance of this document as a policy document that shaped so much of the past um, 20 years or so. 
Um, you know, even if you want to uh, discount the new Pearl Harbor connection or potential connection to September 11th, you know, the, the, the document itself is very, very, very relevant um, yeah. to what has gone, gone on in the, in, in the past, in, in the decades since. Um, and I, I think it definitely warrants a lot more attention than it's received even from people that, um, you know, believe the official 9-11 story. But I mean, even to... Uh, it's just really frustrating to me to put like the whole 9-11 truth movement, just like um, lump them all together. Because I mean, there's people that think the US government was directly involved. And there's people that think the US government let it happen. I mean, there's there's a range of belief there. Um, oh, and there's yeah. just people that think it just wasn't investigated properly. And even the 9-11 commission chairs have, have said that is appropriate. Um, you know, my personal opinion is that people from the U.S. government were involved and there was also involvement from Israeli intelligence and Saudi intelligence and Pakistani intelligence and, and potentially other intelligence agencies of, U, of, of the U.S. Uh, that's my personal opinion. Um, but of course, you know, there are people that have more, quote unquote, acceptable opinions to the to the mainstream. And that can't even be entertained by people um, like Matt Taibbi. I find that um, I find that disconcerting to be frank. Um, well, but a, I don't want to focus on that too much. Well, it is really interesting, Whitney, that let's just say that this locking down cyberspace is sort of an outcropping of this, you know, just this overall strategic plan that the, that the state, that the U S government on some level wants to have control of the internet, but you know, insidiously and cleverly, I might add, they don't want to make it appear that they do. They want to make it appear that it's being done through other means, you know, that these companies are having to get rid of conspiracy theories and fight disinformation. And we got to fight Russians on the Internet now with these troll farms. There's all these different fake reasons that they've come up with to make it seem organic why the Internet is being locked down. We know it's not. We know on a gut level that this was obviously intended. This is the direction things were going to probably go in. And it's also fascinating, too, that this UFO thing, you know, is being pumped up by mainstream media right after they sort of cleared the playing field of all the like yeah. genuine real people who are dabbling with conspiracies, including, you know, I don't like the QAnon community. I think they're mostly just total con artists, but even including them, they just got They just like cleaned the slate. And I just find that absolutely fascinating. We can't ignore that the, the, that's coming off the heels of that. You know, the UFO stuff is just, it's like a, just a few months after they did this giant QAnon purge. I mean, and then, and then the guy who supposedly, oddly Whitney, Ron Watkins, who's been identified as a potential person who was posting as Q, is now all about UFOs and has a new website all about UFO leaks. So just the whole thing is just oddly connected wow. in this mm -hmm. bizarre way. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm really glad you brought up that point earlier about how now it's okay to talk about aliens and UFOs, but <laughs> questioning the 9-11 narrative is still not okay. I mean, yeah, yeah. wow. I mean, what a way to frame it. I mean, that should be a tweet. Uh, that's, <laughs> uh, that's just so telling. I don't know. Um, but some people are really invested in that narrative. Anyway, um, in the interest of time, I'd want to go... Um, back to rebuilding America's defenses because there's some really crazy quotes in here. And I recommend reading that whole section for people that are interested. Yeah. I'm just going to read um, some parts of it. So under a subheading that says space and cyberspace, uh, the first paragraph is pretty interesting. Their justification for it. They say, um, no system of missile defense can be fully effective without placing sensors and weapons in space. Although this would appear to be creating a potential new theater of warfare. In fact, space has been militarized for the better part of four decades. 
And then they say like weather, communications, navigation, and reconnaissance satellites are all increasingly essential elements of U.S. military power. Indeed, U.S. armed forces are uniquely dependent upon space. And then it says um, a 1996 Joint Strategy Review um, concluded space is already inextricably linked to military operations on land, on the sea, and in the air. And then uh, the report of the 1997 National Defense Panel, which, by the way, was also responsible for the pivot to homeland security uh, in, in the lead up to 9-11, um, agreed unrestricted use of space has become a major strategic interest of the U.S. And um, on from there... It talks about um, how space commerce is a growing part of the global economy and how even back in 1996, commercial launches into space of satellites, I guess, were exceeding military launches um, and commercial revenues exceeded government expenditures on space. And in there, they talk about the, this need for, I guess, what people would call today a public-private partnership between the military and commercial companies just because of cost effectiveness. But um, they go on to say many of these commercial space systems have direct military applications, including information from global positioning system uh, constellations and uh, better than one meter resolution imaging satellites. Um, and then they talk about how 95% of current U.S. military communications are carried on commercial circuits. Um, and then um, let's see talks about um, how U.S. military uh, adversaries are poised to catch up and there's no way this can happen. Um, and they, they cite uh, prominent uh, military officials saying space control is not an avoidable issue. It is not an optional extra um, and that it's essential to um, be able to have freedom of operations in the space medium and also deny others the use of space, not just for military purposes, but also um, it says later, um, a space command also recognizes the U.S. must also have the capability to deny America's adversaries the use of commercial space platforms in times of crises and conflicts. Um, which is pretty interesting because, you know, crises and conflicts, is, it can be uh, used quite broadly and vaguely at times. So, you know, what if that applies to any country under U.S. sanctions for any reason? They're not allowed to have satellites Jeez. or something like that. The way they're framing this is, of course, quite, um, quite concerning. And they use the term over and over again, international commons for space. But they make it pretty clear that they don't want to share it with the international community. They want the U.S. to control it in the near term and also the long term. Um, and, you know, they, they have a, a whole section in here on space control. And uh, they talk a lot about uh, in here the need, what I mentioned earlier, I'm not going to go into it too much, the need to create a separate space force um, to uh, facilitate better transformation, their opinion, um, of the U.S. military because it would foster competitiveness uh, within the ranks or something um, uh, along those lines. And of course, then they talk about the cyberspace issue, with the, which they also refer to net war, meaning internet war. And that's interesting that now... Uh, as a parallel to this UFO narrative, we're also seeing the the great increase of cyber attacks, um, the cyber attack narrative, which of course is a lot of that um, is attributed, the blame is attributed to Russia, China, a lot of the same countries. And that is almost exclusively done either by the intelligence community itself or by quote unquote cybersecurity companies that more often than not were created either by the CIA or Israel's Unit 8200. Um, 
I've reported on this a lot in my work. So it's interesting to see that both of those uh, things, this push for militarization of space under the guise of UFOs and the, the net war, um, the internet war um, and the cyberspace war um, with cyber attacks and all of this stuff supposedly between nation states um, is are both kicking off at the same time. Uh, not that long after the creation of Space Force. It's pretty... Um, pretty telling, I would say, but you know, maybe that's conspiratorial. <laughs> oh man. No, uh, I mean, yeah. This it's like, you can no longer, I really do think that the Overton windows move so much that if 60 minutes and Barack Obama are talking about UFOs and like, yeah, like nobody should be worried anymore about sounding too crazy for just talking about these deep state things, you know, that yeah. are very grounded in, in fact, I mean, there's, a, there's so many credible things within 9-11 truth. It, you know, we're, we're doing some speculation about if the neocons were involved or not. You know, the, some of the things they said seems like they had a lot of foreknowledge. But like there's so many other things that really do paint a picture that, you know, something was very wrong and they completely lied to us about what happened. I mean, there's a lot of facts out there to show that it's it's not just what we're talking about with the neocons. So, um, well, and, yeah, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. and, and, and just like speaking of some people who have sort of piggybacked on this new, new UFO thing, like Tucker Carlson is sort of out there acting like this is a threat and he's sort of trying to push, increase the fear about it and acting like, why aren't more people, you know, scared about this or alarmed by this. And he's been really on that. And I think that yeah. that's, that's um, maybe a hint as to what this is supposed to do maybe, but then cigar um, on jetty of uh, the hill or breaking points, whatever their new show is called uh, is, is actually saying, no, this isn't China or Russia. This isn't, he's making videos explicitly saying this isn't uh, to increase the budget for space force. This isn't propaganda. This is real. And we need to start taking this seriously. So it's interesting that Tucker and his narrative is sort of coalescing. And that actually some of the people who are originally involved in, Getting this kind of started in the first place, some of these people who appeared on Joe Rogan, specifically this filmmaker, and his name escapes me right now, because this sort of started to bubble up on Joe Rogan for the past year and a half. That guy has been promoting Tucker and Cigar on Jetty, like on social media. So mm -hmm. it's odd that that's his that he prefers to promote their stuff about it. Yeah, well, um, it's interesting. Um, well, I don't know if all my listeners know that much about Cigar and Jetty's background, but um, it, for people that don't IDT know, he's a... Yeah. He's a fellow at the um, Hudson Institute where Scooter Livy, I think, is I, I think was he's vice fellow. president. Oh, was. Oh, he left recently. Yeah. OK, well, he Only also studied at the, ago. you know, IDF Mossad University and got some certificate there, too, at IDC <laughs> Harris Leah or whatever. So, you know, take that guy with as much credibility as you want, I guess. But he's certainly not a progressive or whatever. Um, populist. <laughs> yeah. Populist, whatever. Um Anyway, and, and, and uh, to bring up Tucker again, um, he recently had on uh, this guy that you mentioned earlier, Luis Elizondo. And in that interview with Tucker, which I think was pretty recent, it was like in April of this year, um, mm -hmm. he said that the um, if the UFO uh, report that's, uh, you know, this Pentagon intelligence community report, if it doesn't highlight how UFOs are a major threat to U.S. national security, it will be an intelligence failure on the scale of 9-11. Holy so that's a pretty shit. intense quote. And he says that right on the off. I mean, and, and it's also on the YouTube description. It's like a one sentence description. And they put the 9-11 thing in there. They really liked that line. Wow. Um, that yeah, I so think that's pretty telling. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's just so fascinating because it's like Tucker and Cigar and these sort of populists have 
made it appear that they're like against the mainstream media elite. Well, they're like and neocon they, populists. Yeah. And they mock, <laughs> you know, they mock uh, the mainstream media for saying that the Capitol riots were like 9-11 as they rightfully should. So they gain some credibility and trust that way. But then Tucker the, uses that rhetoric to describe pushing this. So it's just kind of fascinating the way that mm -hmm. that happens. It's, I don't know. I'm now I'm just going off on. <laughs> well, not, well, no worries. Uh, the last thing I wanted to touch on really quick is, um, you know, um, that that point that uh, rebuilding America's defenses brings up about commercial partners. Um, for people that don't know, of course, uh, SpaceX is the big contractor. They have another one, but they're the main contractor to U.S. Space Force and, and military space operations. Um, they, they've won several multi-million, several multi-million dollar contracts, uh, since 2020, um, and have just been racking up more and more. Uh, there was one, they won 160 million one, uh, in March and, um, have been, have been, uh, just racking them up, uh, pretty much all year long. It's, it's pretty concerning. Um, and they talk about how they want to use, um, you know, really recently, actually on June 4th, want to use Elon Musk, um, SpaceX's starship to deliver cargo around the world. And basically it's SpaceX being the partner there. But if you actually look into SpaceX, um, a lot of, uh, even mainstream media, when it first came around and first started to become like known to people, um, and Elon Musk started to become sort of a prominent, um, figure that compared it a lot and noted the parallels of its business model and what it aims to do specifically with Starlink to a company that existed before that was called Teledesic. And that company was actually started by this, um, uh, uh, basically the Seattle telecom executive who sold his, uh, the network he started to AT&T and Bill Gates, they co-invested together. And this was their thing. And they were going to try and make the world's biggest data network and an internet that blanketed the whole planet. They called it the internet in the sky. Um, and actually there's this document from the air, um, the Air War College from 1999 uh, that calls it uh, the most ambitious of ventures with great potential utility to the Department of Defense um, and all of this stuff and, and how uh, the title of the paper, sorry for um, missing that, was uh, Military Dependence on Commercial Satellite Communication Systems, Strength or Vulnerability. Um, and they talk about Teledesic over and over again. And Teledesic was actually partnered with Boeing, which it was going to be the main contractor for it. Um, and, you know, they, of course, have deep ties to the U.S. military and our military contractors um, themselves. But Teledesic ended up um, folding for various reasons in, in 2002. And that's actually when SpaceX was created. Um by Elon Musk sort of to pick up the pieces in a way of that same project. And if you followed my work on, um, on Bill Gates and Jeffrey Epstein, uh, Elon Musk, um, along with a lot of other prominent Silicon Valley figures um, that uh, like uh, Jeff Bezos, for example, and also the Google co-founders were intimately involved in the Edge Foundation and Edge Foundation event dinners, which were basically uh, fronts for Epstein. Basically, he funded almost uh, all of Edge. The guy that founded it, John Brockman, ran Ghislaine Maxwell's websites. Um, <laughs> in addition, it was on the same like a server or something as um, as the Edge Foundation websites and stuff. I mean, really crazy stuff. Um, and, and Elon Musk, of course, allegedly introduced um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg to Epstein. Um, Jeffrey Epstein got uh, in with Kimball Musk, Elon Musk's brother, and got tours of SpaceX facilities, allegedly. Um, among other things. And of course, Epstein has considerable ties to Bill Gates, as I kind of exposed recently. So they're definitely part of the same uh, network of um, 
intelligence linked and potentially compromised um, of, uh, you know, Silicon Valley oligarchs. And of course, Peter Thiel, um, definitely in that space as well, though he seems to be managing more the terrestrial um, uh, surveillance, I guess you could say operations with Palantir and some of these AI weapon startups, he backs like Anduril, um, among others. But I think it's really disturbing uh, what I mentioned earlier, that Starlink plan, which was also originally Teledesic's plan with military potential uh, admitted by the DOD to basically, they say, and this is from this a CNET um, article on SpaceX, it, the headline is, how SpaceX Starlink broadband will envelop the Earth. I mean, <laughs> they're like very open about it, um, you know, basically blanketing the whole planet in low orbit satellites Amazing. that can beam internet down, but also use that for you know, surveillance capabilities, um, spying on everything, um, <laughs> sending all these crazy space weapons anywhere, blowing up anything. And they want, you know, total control over this, you know, quote unquote, international commons. There's total uh, planetary domination. I mean, it's basically like the building of the Death Star, for lack of a better analogy. But instead of creating like, you know, some orb floating in space that can like laser any point. It's literally surrounding the planet <laughs> in those weapons. Um, and, and it's really disturbing. And I think it's no coincidence either that you have people at the forefront of this, by the way, Amazon also is trying to get in with the space force contracts and military space contracts. Um, but you have Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk uh, at the forefront of this. Oh yeah, we're going to travel into space. Like Jeff Bezos has the blue origin uh, commercial um, space thing where, you know, he's going to go into space with his brother and Piero Midiar <laughs> and all of these guys. Oh, how cool. Sounds fun. And then, you know, Elon Musk is like, we're going to build colonies on Mars and, you know, all these like, you know, kids, uh, I guess, think he's really cool because he tweets memes and whatever, you know. Um, so they've worked really hard to like, you know, sort of capitalize, not necessarily on the alien UFO thing, but it's a similar phenomenon where people are, are like attracted to that because of sci-fi and other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, these same figures responsible for this militarization of space stuff that are basically building this giant, you know, technological hell prison in space around the planet. Um, you know, are basically being like, "Well, what we're doing is actually cool and sci-fi." Um, well, Elon Musk sort of brought it. back. Elon Musk sort of brought back this whole idea of like a renegade billionaire who's like, um, you know, Richard Branson was almost presented uh, that way in like the nineties. Yeah, Remember that, that? they tried to sell though. him that way, and it's like now it, when you look back on that, it's like obviously that was a fucking like PR campaign, like fake oh, thing they tried to do. But Elon yeah. Musk somehow past people's bullshit detectors and he it, they people believe that he is and he's basically made people kind of like injected this idea of like sci-fi optimism like excitement again in people's view of these technologists silicon valley yeah. you know people and what they're capable of which before he came around people were getting increasingly creeped out about what was out there and even though he acts like things are creepy there he's so like sort of you know, cool about it or whatever, that it's like people think they're still like excited. It's like they're not, it, there's a weird people's guard has gone yeah. down about like well, what he has, Silicon Valley people are actually up to. Yeah, totally. And he has really good PR instead of Silicon Valley in general. I mean, the whole myth of, of Silicon Valley is, oh, these were guys just tinkering in their garage and look at all the stuff they made when almost all of them had NQTEL funding from the CIA or some so other sort of national security influence on their founding. 
right? So it's not mm -hmm. exactly guys tinkering in their garage. And if you look at Elon Musk's career, there's no way this guy's a rogue billionaire. He, he, he's gotten like, I think it's more than 4 billion in subsidies. And that was like in 2015. So it's probably more now, like from the government to keep his businesses afloat. And a lot of them, if they were actually like subjected to the business models and, and realities that most businesses in the United States are subjected to, it would not, they would not exist. And a lot of, you know, I mean, Tesla cars have been just racked with problems and SpaceX stuff too. I mean, Tesla cars, they explode all the time. The SpaceX stuff explodes all the time. I mean, you know, people are like, I guess his defenders are like, oh, it's so innovative. Well, of course there's going to be mistakes, but like the guy doesn't follow a regular business model. So he's not a rogue billionaire. Someone's footing the bill and someone made him that wealthy um, from businesses that wouldn't normally generate, that haven't generated uh, that much revenue without obvious um, and, and documented support from the US government. So um, I just want to make that clear to people. He's not a rogue guy um, at all. But but Whitney, he's selling flamethrowers and trucks that are indestructible to like, um, you know. Okay, like, okay, uh, but bullets. trucks that are indestructible. Like, did you not see the promo of that where the no, guy threw like a, a ball at the yeah. <laughs> at the window and it like cracked? Like, yeah, it didn't break through. He's like, oh, like he's still like proud of it because he said he said it was supposed to just like it was going to shatter but not break through. That was his rationalization. <laughs> oh man, yeah, yeah, okay. So I don't know. People like buy the whole PR thing, and you know, oh, he's a billionaire that tweets memes and all this stuff but i mean no dude I, none of these silicon valley billionaires are your friends they all like want to upload their brains into the cloud and live forever and they're all transhumanist like crazy people honestly um and they're really into like gene editing and like uh peter thiel like is obsessed with he has a startup with like injecting you with young people blood to make you young and all this stuff i mean these people are nuts um yeah and, they, and they're and not like rogue and cool and also peter thiel is not a libertarian um he is like a minchus mold bugger um all about you know this uh, <laughs> this like authoritarian uh basically a, a monarchy a single leader ruling over the u.s it's like not libertarian at all that's like authoritarian military dictatorship if you actually look at his beliefs and even like prominent libertarian magazines like reason uh, last year did a whole piece about how peter thiel there's no way he's a libertarian so like you know they've tried to frame him as such and there, there's been a huge effort you mentioned Joe Rogan. I mean, that whole circuit of podcasts similar to him have had a lot of feel adjacent people on there to promote them as cool um, or this whole intellectual dark web thing, you know, that that went on. Um, not that everyone associated with that is, is bad necessarily, but it's sort of to normalize a lot of these people linked to Peter Thiel um, or that are, you know, who's who's. Palantir is a CIA front and a lot of what Peter Thiel does is a CIA front too. And, and it's been done to make them look um, a lot more, you know, legitimate and cool and they're rogue and they're not part of the system. Well, actually Peter Thiel set up all his crap with Richard Pearl. So it's, they are the neocons. They're just the new face of the neocons, but they've, you know, gone about this in, in, in such a way to make themselves look cool and look counterculture when they're really not. Um, and I think people need to start getting wise to that, you know, hopefully unlimited hangout. Um, we have plans to do a lot more articles on that specifically on, on what I like to call the feel verse. Um, and also Elon Musk and some of these other Silicon Valley figures as it relates to Epstein and some other things, um, in the future, because it's really, they really need to stop be being, you know, th this, this PR, um, that that's been built around them of these cool billionaires and the, they're rogue and they want to make the world a better place with technology and all this stuff. It's crap.
um, <laughs> you know, it's just a continuation um, of, of the of the same people um, or the, rather the same groups um, that have been driving this agenda for for decades. And they really need to be, you know, shown to be part of that. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, I think just the classic concept of uh, controlled opposition. A lot of these yeah, for real. media figures that act like they're anti-establishment and, you know, anti-deep state or anti the mainstream media, anti-war even. A lot of them are part of some weird network that's being artificially signal boosted by, you know, just like, uh, you know, two sides of the same coin, as they used to say. It's just it, it does seem like we're being played. Uh, and this UFO thing, you know, does seem I mean, on some level, we are being played by it. It's just hard to know exactly how and for what purpose we're being. Yeah, played. exactly. Think, you know, I think hypersonic weapons, new arms race dominating space are clearly on the agenda and they fit in perfectly mm -hmm. with, uh, with these, these blueprints that we, yeah. we had written in the you know early two thousands. Yeah, I absolutely, uh, absolutely agree. And I think that's a really good spot to end it. Cause I know you have to go Robbie. So uh, <laughs> if you could let listeners know um, where they can follow your stuff and what you're working on right now, that would be great. Well, you can follow um, our podcast media roots radio that I do with Abby Martin. Uh, and that's uh, comes out four times a month um, at, um, patreon.com slash media roots radio uh right now we're doing this really sort of elaborate deep dive history uh, podcast that's only for our patreon subscribers you could donate five bucks a month and get access to it um but it's about the freemasonic history of the united states and we're up to episode seven now um and it's probably going to continue you know at least three to four more parts um, and, uh, yeah, so that's what I've been mostly working on right now. And just, uh, we just did a podcast sort of exposing the Hudson Institute and, uh, Sagar and Jetty and, and the weird school, you know, the counterterrorism uh, diploma or whatever he got from that school in Israel, um, and that kind of stuff. So yeah. And thank you for having me on again, Whitney. It's always a pleasure. Come on. Yeah. Limited hangout. Absolutely. I mean, you're one of my favorite people to have on. You always have really great and insightful stuff to say, and this was no exception. So thank you. And uh, with that being said, thank you all for tuning in to this episode of Unlimited Hangout. I'm hoping to have uh, episodes more frequently this month because um, I couldn't do as much last month. Uh, so look for that. I'm hoping to have uh, Sam Husseini and some other people on um, in, in the coming week. So I'll be uh, talking about that on Twitter, Rockfin, and other places where you can follow my work like Telegram as well. So uh, thanks for tuning in and catch you all next time.